Hello, folks. Welcome to the Growing Our Future podcast. On the show today, we have Farmer Kim with Grow Garden Grow. Also, we have Andres Narvaez, board chair of Gardopia Gardens. Hi, everybody. How are y'all doing? I'm good. Everything's good. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having us. We love our Texas compadres. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. I'm doing well. Doing well. I'm excited to be here. And here on the podcast, we talk about all things education, health, and environment as it relates to gardening and urban agriculture. Kim, you are with the incredible organization Grow Garden Grow, and you guys are doing some tremendous work up in Dallas. And so for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about Grow Garden Grow and what you guys might be doing up there? Yeah, for sure. We have an organization called Grow Garden Grow, and we work with schools in making their school garden dreams come true. And it works on all levels. Sometimes we help build out a garden. Sometimes we help run the entire program, including maintenance and care of the garden. Sometimes we train the teachers because many teachers do not understand plants and growing things. And so we just try to connect all the dots and make the dream of the school come true because, you know, we have ideas of how things should be, but we really have to listen to what the schools want and try to provide what they need. So we've connected with a lot of local organizations and volunteer bases and resources, and and we're just really trying to build the school garden movement in North Texas. And it's so important. All over Texas, all over the United States and the world, people need to know how to grow their food. It takes a group of people or a champion to say, hey, I'm going to go and push forward this initiative. We could be doing anything in the world, but here you are, Farmer Kim, doing this work. Were you the champion of Grow Garden Grow? Is this something that was kind of like the brainchild for you or was it already kind of pre-existing? We found that the people that are doing school gardens in general are the unicorns of the world. They're not the run of the mill cookie cutter educator that's out there. And I was that unicorn um, at a school where I was at Moss Haven Farm, which we're celebrating our 10 year anniversary this year. And that was kind of our flagship of where we really, it was training ground for everybody. I was an educator, a special education teacher, and I was the unicorn that the school picked to be the gardener. My grandfather was a farmer, so I learned from him. And in just being in this business for the last decade, I found that a lot of people are totally disconnected from the soil. They don't have anybody in their family that they can remember who had a garden. Sometimes you ask the kids and their grandparents might have an herb garden or maybe a small vegetable garden, but in general, everyone's pretty disconnected from that system. So when they wanted a school garden where I taught, I started it and we started it as an after-school program because I was still working. The first year, 20 kids signed up. The second year, 80 kids signed up. The third year, 260 kids signed up. 
And so we were on to something and I was able to retire from teaching, which was great. And that was a bonus. And it was a safety net for me because I could still get some payment and see if that would all work out. And it did. And and when we first started that school, we aligned with um, American Heart Association. Their national headquarters is a mile from that school. That's really what drives me is the health of the environment and the health of the people. And so educating people about those things is really the passion. I thought being a teacher and educator was my you know dream job. And this is totally my dream job. The school garden movement started 25 years ago with edible schoolyards. So Texas is really behind the mark. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so impressed that you were able to come up with this idea and the model. You mentioned Edible Schoolyard, and so does Stephen out in Berkeley and Alice Louise Waters and the great work that they do. It makes me kind of think of Gardopia's beginning. Andres, I'm hoping that you can share the insights of Gardopia and maybe in its early time, you know, similar to Kim, what did that look like when its programming was getting started working with kids in schools? Similar to what you just mentioned uh, about how most of your students were introduced into gardening, myself, same. You know, I remember my grandparents having their garden out in their backyard, going and helping them. I kind of see the similarities over and over again as far as sort of that generation of grandparents teaching their grandchildren and then it sort of being lost and then picked back up again. To Dom's question, the first two or three years of Cardopia was just working. It was a lot of the infrastructure of the gardens. Our CEO, Stephen, was really important with regards to going out, introducing the concept, talking to educators, talking to one school here, one school there. But I mean, it was difficult to get into schools as part of curriculum like we dream. You end up having to kind of form your own path. Cardopia went about it in a nonprofit manner. It's you didn't. And that's something that I'm interested in is what are some of those differences? What are some of the difficulties that you may have encountered approaching it like that? So Massive and Farm is a nonprofit. The school garden that we started is a nonprofit because to get funding from the school district, you had to like use their vendors and we had chickens and there was no one that could give us chicken supplies that was on their vendor list. It was very frustrating. And then in May, the district captures all the money of everybody's bank accounts back to gain interest over the summer. And then they release it again in September. So there were three months where you couldn't access your money. That got really frustrating very quickly. And so that's why we became a nonprofit. Now we have 24 raised beds and a farm field and a chicken coop. And we, I mean, we have a big system, but if you have six garden beds or eight garden beds, that's another story, but that was super frustrating. So that's how we started a nonprofit for that. And then Two years ago, I started Grow Garden Grow, and we've branded it where it's got a different kind of brand. And I was honestly, we applied for a nonprofit for Grow Garden Grow, and we shifted gears. In February, we decided to keep that as a LLC and then go to the North Texas School Garden Network as a nonprofit because we're working with a partner who's doing the same work in Fort Worth. And it would just get fouled up with what we have going on already. And the North Texas School Garden Network was started during the pandemic we had a USDA farm to school grant and we were supposed to meet in person and we couldn't. So we did four online trainings last year and we had really good traction and really good connections that we formed. So we just decided to kind of slide it over that way. And that 
can support Fort Worth, it can support Dallas, it can support other organizations, not necessarily Grow Garden Grow, but other people doing the work just to build this movement because we have a lot of work to do. And, and even though we're doing the same as maybe Gardopia is in San Antonio or Pease is in Austin or any other organization, there's so much room for this. There's, there's so much space for people to do this work that it's not, we're not stepping on anybody's toes. So that was kind of how that all started with the nonprofit for-profit discussions. And then honestly, I was trying to get insurance for the teachers that were doing the work under Grow Garden Grow. It was different between the for-profit and the nonprofit, how we could work that out. But that's kind of how we got started changing that situation. We really need to change the policies statewide. That's my next big push over the summer after I rest and then get back into the school garden in the fall. We really need to to have it be a mandate that every school offers garden education as part of their school grounds, whether it be in already existing beds, which they have shrubs and things around. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to be food, although I'm a big fan of food, but even planting native spaces where the monarchs can come through and, and just getting the kids and the curriculum connected to nature. There's so much curriculum for gardens out there. The teachers need to use what they already teach and connect it. And if you work backwards that way, you get way better buy-in with the staff. They're the masters of their curriculum. And it's so when I meet with teachers, they say, what is it that we can connect? And they're like, oh, we're watching ladybugs on videos. And it's like, no, 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 let's go out into the garden. Or we're doing soil studies in a tray. Well, there's erosion happening right by the school garden. So let's go look for that. Really finding practical applications of what the teachers are already teaching makes it way more meaningful and impactful to the teachers too. So there's all that. I can 100% support aligning curriculum with the pacing guide. And that's actually what we do. It has me thinking about our seventh grade class at Democracy Prep at the Stewart campus, where the seventh graders are learning about cells. And it's just so important that at least on our end, Stephen texts me in the beginning and he says, you know, this week we got to focus on uh, DNA and talk about genetically modified organisms, different types of kernels and how they're growing and talk about Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution. So it does spiral. A lot of this stuff is really integrated when you look at the uh, the pacing guide and how we can align ourselves better with schools. And so that's always something that we want to do here at Gardopia. And I'm sure many organizations that are always across the uh, the Texas plain. You know, you mentioned peas. I guess for us, the difficulty is always the funding. How do you sustain this work? And not only just the funding, but COVID. When we weren't able to go to schools, those school gardens that we had taken care of for years, well, now nobody's even in the schools. Everybody's virtual learning. Did you see any kind of the same when you were dealing with your schools up in North Texas? A lot of the schools that I work with, I help them form garden teams because it's not my garden, it's their garden, and we're just a support for their gardens. The people that were involved in the garden teams kept it up. I mean, it was outdoors and they were able to do that and access, sometimes school access, sometimes the garden's in a courtyard and you can't get there. But uh, most of our gardens are accessible to 
entering without going to the school. That really didn't shut us down very much. We did, we grew food and we were doing it to donate to the food bank because the kids weren't there. And so we kept things in the ground and kept things going. And, and then we were shut down that first half a year and then a little bit in the beginning of the next year, but they let us come on campus. And that was kind of unusual, but the three people that are the four people of our team are all educators. And so I think that helped because we had worked within the school systems. I don't know, but luckily we were able to rally and still work with kids. So we didn't really shut down much. We did a few virtual lessons, but not very many. So that wasn't too bad. That part of just the maintaining and, and handing it off or working side by side, sometimes we're paid to do that. And sometimes we do manage gardens and that's part of it. But getting back to the funding in Texas, there's a lot of money out there to to find. And it's just shaking the trees and trying to find it. But it's very, 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 very hard to find funding that pays for people. You can get funding for shovels and soil and you can get plants donated and seeds donated, but we have to value the people that are doing the work and they need to be paid. I've talked a lot with leaders in schools about They have discretionary funds and they pay people to tutor like, I don't know, $25 an hour or whatever on Saturday school and come early. And they have this to pay teachers for extra pay. So pay someone at least two hours a week just to water, just have them water, like just make sure it stays alive. When someone's paid, they're going to get off their computer and go take care of it. They're not going to let it become a jungle of weeds. Valuing the work that people are doing is really another push for me and paying people to do the job. We were paid through field trip fund because they had it in their budget and they couldn't go anywhere. The principals were able to use their field trip funding to pay for us to come to. We do work with some school districts that have funding is not a problem. Their PTA just handles it. But then we also work with schools in food deserts where they don't have anything. We're able to figure out how to fund that with the school and donations. You know, I think that's a, a good point. I've heard that been brought up in plenty of conversations where individuals are trying to get these initiatives into schools or accessible to kids and everything is funded. but Nobody wants to pay, or it's not in the budget. It's not in those frames. So that, to understand how that can get pretty frustrating. And they have wiggle room. There's wiggle room, but you just, you have to have lots of conversations about how to do it or what if, or how can we figure this out and make it work? That part is important. It ultimately comes down to the administrator and they can make it happen. And sometimes they're not thinking creatively about how to make it happen. And you can kind of fill that in with them. But every person that works inside a school building is like a saint there. It's amazing the work that they're doing and what they've had to endure and put up with. And it's just been difficult. And so when you can find somebody who will champion about rally around edible education in school gardens, then, you know, you try to latch on to them and then they find, they tell their friends and it kind of catches on. And honestly, since the pandemic, that's when we got that USDA grant, my phone is ringing every day and people are like, well, I heard about the school you're doing. I heard about, so it's catching on finally, but it's still not in every schoolyard across Texas, which is my big dream. And I would love to see it there. Uh, I dream about that too. A lot of people may not know, especially our listeners here, but when I was in college studying for my undergraduate I was bio-pre-medical, 
when I had went to the garden at St. Edwards University, it was a complete shift and it changed the trajectory of my life. I then later that summer went to go study abroad in Costa Rica and see sustainable farming or facets of it. And here we are today. What I'm thinking about is the impact of the work that it has with the students, because that's the reason we're here. It is a tough job. You know, Kim, you know, Andres. It's for people who are go-getters and they are really thinking about the betterment of their community. But what are the stories that the kids or the families may be saying, having gone through the programming that you're offering? Well, all the time parents say, you know, there's kale on my grocery list every week because of you. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's thanks. <laughs> I'm not sorry. Um, the nutrition piece is the kids grow it, they eat it. And then they go home going, I love vinaigrette. I don't like ranch anymore. That's really great to be able to impact health changes because there's 10 year olds in Dallas County that have type two diabetes because they're eating Takis and drinking sodas for breakfast. It just impacting that way or having kids try French breakfast radish or that's awesome. That's making steps forward. Um, but we have had kids like I have some students in their twenties who like they, it was their first year in the farm and it made a, you know, they, it was a big impact for them and they came back and volunteered with us. And we, we have lots of kids that come back and volunteer on our work days, which is great. Cause they, if, if they, if you can get their phones, if they can put their phones down, they work a lot, but, um, and they can work hard. I have a student now who's a senior in high school. And last year she organized a group of students at her high school. And I was their advisor on starting a school garden. And so she went to the district and said, we'd like to start a school garden. And they're like, there's no room on the high school campus. We're building a big, you know, sports complex. And she was like, Oh, and so she and a team, decided that they were going to go to the neighboring elementary school and start a school garden there. And they've got approval, they've got a plan, they've got some funding coming in. And this is all student-led. And it started from her impact from our school. And she says that after when she went to our school, she started a garden at home. And then she was like, this is such an important thing. I want other people to know how to do it. So hopefully we'll break ground before she leaves for college, but they have funds. They have the people, they've got the plan. It's just the district kind of requires a lot out of it. They want them to do concrete, which is a gajillion dollars right now. So we're trying to work around the, how about concrete later for the, cause ADA compliance and all that. We're trying to phase it for, but it's really great to see that impact. And kids are, they're, they're the ones who are going to make change when they wanted cigarette smoking to decline. They went to kids when they wanted recycling to increase. They went to the kids, whole foods, you know, whole kids foundation, American heart association. They're talking to kids because adults are like, yeah, yeah, whatever with your, you know, your kale, but the kids will really be the ones they're, they're the, they're the agents of change. So hitting the kids is really important. And we, I see it every day. They're just amazed or they do, or they bring me something from home or they tell me about how they connected to a farmer or whatever. So it's, it's awesome. And, and they have huge buying powers. They, they pitch a fit. They don't want Cheetos. They want kale chips. <laughs> My heart is warm. I couldn't thank you enough just for being that beacon, that champion for our youth, our families, and just overall health. So many things fall in suit with that. Our cultural cuisine, our legacy that we have with our dishes and our food, we're just getting them one step closer to 
being healthier through the garden. At the end of the day, that's what we're here. And so I like to ask on our way out, what's the one gem that you can give us? Is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? A little bit of insight. The more that we can push this movement, the better off we're going to be with our planet and the health of our kids. And they were concerned when it was alarming that 10-year-olds had type 2 diabetes and what that impact was going to be on our health system before COVID even came down the pike. You can see what's happened with COVID. And so the obesity and chronic health diseases and all those things that it's going to hit these 10-year-olds that have type 2 diabetes earlier. Supporting edible education in your local school, in your child's school, getting engaged, asking schools if they want a garden or how you can support a garden movement with them and, and, and getting jumping on that bandwagon is really, really important. And supporting places like Ardopia and people that do just edible education in general because there's so many reaches and so much impact that we can do just from doing this work. And, you know, the average school garden lasts two years in the United States. So if there's one in your neighborhood that is filled with weeds, go see what you can do to help them out and connect to people that are doing the work. And the more you build your community, the stronger your program's going to be. All that is all good. So help the littles find their way. And no farmers, no food. And we we need to have people that know how to do this work. The average farmer is 58 years old. We need to make that lower and just getting them engaged. And the impact it made on me when I was a little kid, I'm doing it now. My grandpa would be proud. So excited to have you both. Thank you so much for your time. This is the Growing Our Future podcast. And until next time, y'all, take care. If you need a couple corners, I can get you some help. And then I see you on the Because you need some milk. Living your road with some big dreams. About to make it big on the big screen. Don't pay attention to that TV. So take food. Ain't what you need. Come on the house, let us chop it up. That's Prince Elements made it popular. The youth of the juvenile no stopping us. The youth of the juvenile no stopping us. But the health, well, social change. My fruits and veggies be off the chain. Want real food for real people. Gonna break your bread. Cafe. Room money, real money. That's all I need. Get the green. Rock clean. Wanna make a hundred meals? We done cooked a hundred meals. Cause my people gotta eat. My people gotta eat. food. Grown food. ASC got produce. ASC about to go cool. We gone.